As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, 2012 was a monumental year for me. And going into 2013, I felt like a superhero. Like I had been covered in the psychomagnotheric slime of Ghostbusters 2. The slime that magnifies your mood and leaves the elated feeling truly euphoric. In my memory, 2013 was fantastic from start to finish. I have two great music memories to share with you, as well as the biggest and best job of my photography career to date, and a brand new baby daughter. Oh, Rosie. Stick around and I'll tell you all about it. I'm Jacob Slayton, and this is my entire life. All right, I'm going to hit this year essentially chronologically because that's just kind of the way things unfolded and the way things stack up in my brain. And to start off, I served on a moo trip in February of 2013. You remember in the last episode, I talked about moo, Men of the Ozarks, this men's retreat that I went on with my church, and it was just the most life-changing experience I had had, I have had. To, to date, certainly in the spiritual sort of world, but maybe even just outside of that too. It, it was massively impactful. And I got the chance to go back and surf again on a trip in February. And it was just amazing. It was just so cool, so awesome. I just felt like I was finally and for the first time just doing something that had some significance, some like eternal significance, some some concrete in it you know something that mattered and it just it just was amazing and i was just so fired up um for all things uh sort of in that spectrum of of uh of men's ministry and events and and that type of stuff and just church in general and and uh you know just the story of god for mankind i was just super psyched about it and i still am and right after that in march of that year I was also able to go and serve on a youth retreat uh, with my church, um, and I was super excited about that. It was amazing. We went to Taos, New Mexico. It was a ski trip. Um, they called it Snow Camp, and it was my first time to uh, to get to go to Snow Camp. I had heard all about it. It was like this legendary event that all the kids really looked forward to. So it was just super fun. And you know, the thing I remember about that trip was. We go out to Taos, we, we like have all these vans and we drive overnight and we get the, um, you know, our room assignments. And I had a group of, I think they were 10th grade boys and, um, and they were cool. I, I, I kind of knew like two of them and, um, one of them was the son of one of the pastors and he was just a cool kid. And, uh, and, and we, you know, I, I got my room assignment. I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was just excited to be there, excited to go snowboarding and excited to kind of like spend some time with these kids. And to make this story super short, basically, um, we spent like, I don't know, four or five days in Taos. And every day we would like go ski all day. And then in the evening, there would be like group time where you would go to like the big group in the little area that they had rented where they had like games and music and, you know, like a message. And then, um, then you go from that back to your room with your small group and like discuss the message or whatever, try to get your kids to engage some way. Right. And so, um, right off the bat, like I, uh, it it was pretty cool. My, uh, my, my, my co-leader Taylor and I, 
um, decided really quickly that our little condo space with our five or six, you know, high school guys was going to be like a family environment, like a family setting, you know? And so the very first thing we did, we, we got the guys like sort of on board with this idea right off the bat. But the idea was we're going to have like no TV inside the condo. It's going to be the pure like chill zone. It's not going to be hype and excitement. It's going to be massive chill. And if there's anything that I'm really good at is like setting the tone for like a good chill vibe. And, uh, and so we go in there and uh, the very first thing Taylor and I did was we like confiscated all the TV remotes and we unplugged all the TVs and the cable boxes and everything. And we were just like, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be chill, happy, peaceful zone. We decided we were going to have family meals every time we had a meal. Um, we had breakfast and dinner together and, uh, and then lunch was just kind of out on the slopes. You pack a sandwich or whatever. And, um, and, and there was like every, every, uh, dinner was like a pre-cooked meal, like a frozen lasagna or something like that, that was provided to you. And so like, it was just so much fun. We had like, we would like light a candle and we would have like family meal, like lasagna and we would like hold hands and pray and like, you know, just treated it like, like Taylor and I were like the parents of these, these, these dumb kids. And it was just so fun. And the, the young guys like bought into it immediately and, and it just felt great. And then, um, so anyways, we would go to like the uh, big group sessions and do the worship and do the, uh, the, the message. And, uh, the message was really odd. The, the, the guy that was speaking that week is a guy named Kevin and he was just fantastic. Anyway, the messages were great. And then you go back to your, uh, your condo with your guys and you're supposed to discuss, right? And then the next morning, all of the leaders would gather together for the morning leader meeting and you would go and circle up and, and just kind of report to the big group of leaders, like how your week was going, what your kids were kind of dealing with and how it was going and stuff like that. And so after the message, we'd go back and we'd have our small group time. And it was like fantastic. Like just like we had kind of planned, there was no other distractions to, to do inside the condo. And so, you know, we would like turn the lights down low and uh, sit down and just kind of be like, all right, what did you guys think? And I, I made a rule right like early on that was like, you can say whatever you want in this room. You can cuss in this room. I do not give a shit about your language. What I want from you is your honesty and like your openness. Don't bullshit me. You know, I told him that right off the bat. In fact, one of the guys was like, hey, uh, just a quick question, man. He was like this really cool, like honest, uh, you know, kid who's become a good friend now. But he was like, hey, uh, quick question. Um, why do you think it's okay to cuss in front of us? And I was like, I was like, dude, that's a great question. Thank you for challenging that. Um, and I think it's okay to cuss in front of you because that doesn't really matter to me. What I want is honesty. And sometimes it's easier to be honest when you can throw out a salty word or two. Okay. And so they were like, all right, respect. So, um, anyway, we just had these like amazing group sessions where like, sometimes the kids would be like, you know, I, I don't, I don't freaking understand any of this stuff. All I can think about is this girl that I'm talking to and I'm like, sweet, that is a good comment. You know, we want to know that that's great. And, um, anyway, we had great like group sessions and in the mornings, I remember like the very first like leader meeting in the morning, uh, we get together and, uh, the story is going on way longer than I expected it to. But now that I'm thinking back on it, it was such a fun time and, uh, it deserves a little bit more attention, I guess. <laughs> and, um, but at the leader meetings, we would get together and there was like, I don't remember how many leaders, but like there was probably like 
20 different condos or maybe 25 different condos of small groups. And so there was like, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. It doesn't matter. Say there was 20, who cares? The point is there was maybe like 25, 30 leaders, you know, gathered up and we were all like, all right, well, how was your small group time last night after the first morning? And every, every other leader was like, it was terrible. I couldn't get anybody to pay attention. It was a nightmare. Everybody's just being an idiot and like fart jokes and like the girls are whatever. It was just, it's just chaos. And me and Taylor are sitting there just like silently listening to everybody kind of go around the room and report back on their, um, on their small group time. And, and we were kind of, we didn't really want to say, cause we had had such a great time and everybody else had had such a bad time. And finally they came around to us and they were like, Jacob Taylor, how's, how's your group going? And, uh, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, man, it was kind of perfect. It was kind of excellent. Um, we, we like really had some, some, some strong like sharing and some honesty and like, you know, people were praying and sharing like deep stuff about their lives. And like, it was just kind of fantastic. And, uh, everybody looked around and they were like, geez, what the hell? Like, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. It was just really cool. And, um, and like, that was the story of the whole week. Like every leader meeting, uh, we got around and it was like the same story. Like some people had better times with, with their kids, like later in the week, but like ours were like fantastic and like super memorable every time. And, uh, it was just powerful. Like there was tears. People were sharing like, like deep seated, like, um, abandonment issues with their parents and stuff. And just like sharing like real stuff with us. And Taylor was such a great, um, you know, co-captain on that. And we were both just kind of like, you know, just, you just take what, what you're given. And it was just, it was just really cool. It was just a great opportunity to just like, um, just be a buddy to these, these younger guys and, uh, just kind of let them know, like, it's going to be all right. And it wasn't all heavy either. Like I remember that week we like, I was like sharing with them, like some music that they didn't know about, like Bob Dylan and stuff. And, and like that good, like, um, heartbreak sort of stuff. Um, it was just fantastic. So that was snow camp, had a blast, hung out in Taos. It was just amazing. And, uh, and came home from that. And very shortly after that, was um Easter weekend of of uh, 2013 which was I think um I feel like it was late that year maybe like end of April or or May even anyway I get a call from the good people at Reuters uh the international news organization that um you know hires photographers and journalists all over the world to cover stories and whatnot and uh, at this point, Reuters had hired me for a number of different things. It wasn't real common to get a call from Reuters, but um, I was always I was always excited to get it. And so I got a call from Reuters, and they said, "Hey, are you familiar with this oil spill that has happened in the town of Mayflower, Arkansas?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, absolutely. Everybody knows about that." Um, and uh, it, Mayflower is only you know just a short little drive from uh, from Little Rock, maybe twenty minutes. And, uh, and so they said, Hey, we need you to go out there and shoot some photos of the oil spill. It's a huge thing. It may be hard for you to get access to the areas where, you know, you'll get some good shots, but you know, do your best and, and, and see what you can come up with. So I was like, sweet. And it happened to be Easter Sunday, the day that they wanted me to go out and, uh, and do this. And so I remember like I went to church that morning for Easter and then I went home and, uh, grabbed my cameras and headed out to Mayflower. And it was so wild. Like, I mean, this was a huge story. It was called the Pegasus Pipeline. 
uh, burst in uh, in Mayflower that goes like right through the town, right through these uh, neighborhood residential areas. And, uh, and so I pull up and I kind of like figured out on the map, like where things were and stuff. And it, but it was right in the middle of this, this little small town, but it was right dead, dead center of it. And, uh, I pull up and I, I park my car and kind of get out on the shoulder and I can see the oil in the water and there was cops directing traffic and there was other journalists and stuff. And, um, I was on the side of the road and, I'm just shooting photos, right? I'm shooting photos of the cops directing traffic. I'm shooting photos of the cleanup crews, just like the story, right? Like what, the, what was happening, you know? And I'm, I'm trying to get shots where you can see that there's oil in the water. And it was on this um, wetland, like lake area. And so that was kind of the big, one of the big parts of the story, that it, this lake and, and wetland was being polluted and there's wildlife and all this stuff. And, and anyway, this cop comes up to me. Now, I was out of the way. I was on the shoulder of this road. I was not causing any problems. This cop comes up to me and he says, uh, he says, hey, man, uh, we're going to need you to move along. And I said, oh, yeah, I understand. But like, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm shooting photos for Reuters. Um, you know, I'm just here covering the story. And he said, like, I'm not going to tell you twice. You need to move along. And, uh, and he, he, he pulled out his handcuffs. He was like about to handcuff me. And I was like, I looked at the handcuffs and I was like, uh, what? And he goes, he's like, do you really want to, you know, go to jail today? Cause you need to get out of here. And I, I kind of looked at the handcuffs and I was like, damn, it would be really cool to be arrested for shooting an oil spill. You know, that would be so cool. Um, and I really considered it. I really considered it. Um, but for some reason I was like, it's Easter Sunday and I don't want to be in jail on Easter Sunday. Although maybe like, Maybe that would be like a perfect analogy, like spiritual analogy. Maybe if it was Good Friday, I could have uh, could have taken the arrest and then maybe get uh, maybe get boosted two days later. Um, you know, it's a common misconception, by the way, while we're on the subject, that Jesus rose uh, after three days. It's not really the case. Jesus rose on the third day, and so it was really just two days later. He died on Friday, rose on Sunday. That's two days later, not three. But anyway. I refused the arrest and I said, whatever, man, I got what I needed and I walked off. I had gotten what I needed at that area, but uh, I still wanted to get more. And there's plenty of other areas I knew about that I could maybe get some cool shots. So I drove to another spot and I see some oil coming out in this little spot. And uh, there was like a, a backhoe and some cleaning efforts that were happening, but there was nobody there at the time. So I was like, oh, sweet, I can get down here and get some shots. So I walked down there. And uh, I'm shooting photos of, of stuff. And um, eventually this guy comes up, this um, like cleanup crew guy comes up and he goes, he, he's being this country asshole kind of guy. And he goes, son, what are you doing? And I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting photos for Reuters. I'm a photojournalist. I'm just covering the, the uh, oil spill. And he goes, I need to get your name. And he like pulls out a pad. And I was like, I'm not telling you my name. And he's, you know, and then it's like, I love it when people try to get something out of you that cannot be extracted from you against your will. Like, I'm not telling you my name and you don't need my name. And who the hell are you anyway? And uh, so I was just like, not telling you my name, man. I got what I need. I'm leaving anyway. Peace out. So I left that spot. And uh, so I got hassled a good, a good bit at those two spots. And then I continue on to, uh, where, you know, it's funny, like I started kind of at the edge of the oil spill and, uh, that's where the cop was messing with me. And then I went further in and that's where the next guy messed with me. And I was like, well, I got to go to the epicenter too. So, and I was like, it's kind of silly to start that way after I've already been hassled, I'll probably get turned away. But, 
but whatever. Anyway, the epicenter of the oil spill was inside this residential neighborhood. So I drive into there and I'm like, surely this is not going to work. I drive past some cleanup crews. There's people, you know, cleaning up and there's cops everywhere. And I just kind of drove right on through the line. I assume they thought that I must have just lived in the neighborhood. And I pull over and I mean, there was oil everywhere. It was everywhere and all the like um, drainage ditches on the side of the road and, and like just any low land where it could settle, there was oil. And I got an amazing picture of basically, sorry, I'm jumping around here, but I got some amazing pictures. One of them uh, ended up on nationalgeographic.com. These things get spread all over the world, all over the world. Th- this was by far my most published uh, photo at the time. And uh, it got on nationalgeographic.com. Um, it was on like Japanese language papers all over. It, it was so cool. It was in Korean. It was in Mandarin. It was in Russian. It was in Ukraine. I mean, it was like everywhere, um, this oil spill in Arkansas. And it, strangely enough, at the epicenter area, I was able to walk through the whole neighborhood. I could have walked right up to the oil and scooped up a cup of it and taken it home with me. I mean, it was right there at my feet and nobody hassled me at all, like at all. Um, then I got some really cool shots and it was just a really fun and wild experience to like be threatened with arrest, like being a journalist, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I would, um, you know, that's not why I got into photography, but it's, it was exciting, you know, it was fun. And so I got to go home and, uh, submit those photos and they were super happy with them. And it was just a wild uh, experience. And again, like up until that point, that was definitely my most, uh, widely published, uh, photos in the, in the world for sure. Um, further on in that summer, we had a beach trip with our community group. I told you last episode about how we had this solid, um, group, we called it group group. And, um, we would go to the beach together. We had done it several times. And this was maybe the, the second or third time that we had gone with, with this group. And I want to tell you about a very specific moment during that beach trip that was just like, an image of heaven, like a picture of heaven to me. I mean, it was, you know, have you ever had those experiences where it's so perfect and so awesome and you're able to stop and look at the event and go, my God, what a magical and majestic thing I get to sit here and experience. This is a taste of heaven. Well, that's what happened on this beach trip. And I want to tell you about it. So basically there's five or six couples at this beach trip. And I think there was five at the time. And, you know, we've all have little kids. Everybody had at least one kid and we had two, some, some couples had two, but, but everybody had at least one kid. And, you know, there was a, a couple of ladies were pregnant and, you know, you're, you're in those years when your family's growing, right. And the kids are little. And on these types of trips, um, it was all kind of, um, zone coverage, right. It was like you, you, you help out whatever kids nearby, um, you know, you're, you're changing other kids' diapers, you're wiping butts, you're feeding kids, you're, you know, there was always like these moments on these beach trips where like some adult would be passed out on the couch, you know, and there'd be a, you know, one or two other kids like just snoozing on that adult, you know, just like leaned over, just drooling, everybody's just tired and exhausted and just having, having a great, great time, right? And so it was just like this great like communal parenting you know, we all rented this big house and slept in the same house together. We ate every meal together for a week and, you know, shared everything, you know, it was like people were wearing each other's clothes and stuff. And, you know, you're just sharing your, your beer and your drinks and your food. And and every night, 
you know, a different couple would, um, would cook dinner for the group. And, you know, we, so we split up those, uh, those, uh, responsibilities. And then also every couple, um, had their own like date night or dates, like time where they could go and do something without their kids and we would just take care of the other kids. And so it was just like this magical, amazing picture of, uh, of just love, you know, that like the, just the, the, the absolute ideal version of like communal love and sharing and giving and, and just um, encouraging and, and being there for each other. Right. And so this one night on the beach trip, I'll never forget. It was just like this perfect moment where um, I forget who was cooking. I think it was, um, our friends Ben and Claire were cooking dinner and they had made like fish tacos or something like that. And anyway, dinner was kind of getting ready. And so everybody was kind of corralling their kids and getting them in off the beach and, and, uh, you know, getting them hosed off on the deck outside the, the, uh, the beach house and, you know, finding shoes, washing hands, going to the bathroom, all that stuff. And the little kids were getting in their high chairs and everything. The food's getting ready. And as that, all that stuff was happening, I, I'm kind of always going to like, I always end up being like the music guy of the group. So I'm always turning on some music and, and finding the right tunes for the right moment and everything. And of course, uh, what better music to listen to when you're in this kind of an experience than the man himself, James Taylor. And so I turn on James Taylor on my, uh, little Bluetooth speaker and, uh, James Taylor's kind of bopping and I'm looking around the room and everybody's kind of taking care of each other's kids and they're, they're wiping hands off and stuff and getting them in their little high chairs and getting plates ready. And, and, um, you know, Ben and Claire kind of finishing up dinner and, and we're getting our drinks and shutting the doors and kind of, you know, settling down for dinner and James Taylor's singing. And somebody says, all right, dinner's ready. Let's circle up and pray. And so we kind of like all gather around. And I remember like I was holding a, a, a different kid, this little girl named Evie, little sweet little Evie. And I'm holding her and, uh, you know, she's maybe two or three or something like that. And, and uh, I'm holding her and we kind of all circle up to pray and we're all like, you know, just sort of beach tanned and, and tired, but happy and exhausted and, and just thrilled about life. And we kind of circle up and you kind of like touch the person next to you or hold hands or put your hand on somebody and somebody prays. I believe it was Evie's mom, Julia, and she starts to pray and James Taylor is singing and I open my eyes and I look around while Julia's praying and James Taylor's singing. Evie's in my arm and my other kid's being held by somebody else. And and I look around the room and people are kind of bouncing to James Taylor. And Julia's saying this beautiful prayer. And I look out the window and the beach is, you know, the waves are just like gently crashing onto the beach. And, and there's toys and junk everywhere and the place is trashed. And there's hot food on the table and happy friends and just nothing but love. And I remember the lines uh, from the song when James Taylor says, nobody's going to tell me that I'm doing wrong today. Whenever I see your smiling face, it makes me smile myself because I love you. And, you know, I just, oh man, it gives me goosebumps just to think about that. The love that we shared, um, having your hand on a friend's shoulder and just kind of bopping along with the prayer and, you know, and then Julia says, amen. We all kind of clap and, and you get dinner going and everything and, and, and you, you eat and you're full and you're, you're drinking a cold Pacifico and you're eating some fish tacos and your kids are happy. And, you know, the place is a, a wreck, but it's everything you've ever wanted in life, you know. And gosh, what a beautiful, beautiful moment that we got to share. And we had so many of those 
um, over the years. It just was like, it just warmed my heart in, in every way. Um, and, and that just, I'll never forget, you know, those moments and, and I'll cherish those forever. And I, I really do think that that's a picture of heaven. That's what it's going to be like. You're surrounded by the people that you love, doing something that you love, wonderfully exhausted, wonderfully happy, wonderfully um, anticipating the next moment, hoping that it never comes to an end, you know. And uh, it's just it's just a miracle, just an amazing thing. And I'm so thankful for those moments. Okay, moving on from there, I got to tell you about two great musical memories. I guess in addition to that James Taylor moment, it should be three great musical memories. So that's one of them. The first one's James Taylor. I'm going to tell you two more great music memories from that year. Then I'm going to tell you about the biggest photo job of my career. And then I'm going to wrap it up by telling you about the birth of my third child, Rosie. Okay. In October, I got to go to this event. I went to Scottsdale, Arizona to shoot this event. I was by myself. I was at this amazing luxury resort. And I was kind of bummed out a little bit. Just I don't, I don't love being like solo on these things. It's just not as fun as it is when I've got, you know, my buddy Andy with me. And so it's one of those events where I was just kind of bored and everything. But whenever I travel, I always look at um, this app called Bands in Town and see who's playing, you know, nearby, wherever I am. Uh, because usually I'm traveling to like bigger cities and there's generally going to be at least one show that I'm interested in. And, uh, and that at the beginning of that trip, I look at that app and I realize Joe Pug is playing um, like the next night in Phoenix. Scottsdale is not far from Phoenix. And I was like, well, holy shit, I got to go see Joe Pug. And I look at my schedule and I realize I'm going to be free that night. And so um, I, I bought a couple tickets, not a couple, I bought one ticket to see Joe Pug. And, uh, and I was like, hell yeah, like I needed something like that to be excited about. And so the night comes and uh, I had, I remember it ended up being a pretty expensive ticket because I had to get a cab from, this is before Uber or maybe Uber was just beginning at the time, but um, no, I don't think there was any Uber. Um, I had to get a cab from the hotel uh, all the way into Phoenix. It was like a, it was like a $40 cab ride. And then I knew I was going to have to take a $40 cab ride back. So that's 80 bucks. The ticket was 20 bucks. I'm already spending a hundred dollars to go to this show. Plus I got to eat while I'm there. Cause it was like, I was spending the whole evening there. So, you know, it ended up being like a $150 night after I'd, you know, ate and had some beers and stuff like that. It was this little bar called the rhythm room in Phoenix, Arizona. And I get in there and it was like this perfect kind of place, like much like the spectators bar that I told you about in the last episode, my favorite kind of local bar here in my hometown, uh, out there in Phoenix, I walk in, I was like, Oh, nice. This place is cool. And it was just a small little bar. And, and, uh, anyway, I get in there and I get a drink and I get a burger and I got some time to chill and everything. And it was just a cool vibe. And finally the show starts Joe Pug comes out with just a, it was just a trio. It was just him, an upright bass player, and then another guitar player. Um, and Joe played uh, guitar and harmonica. And, and uh, it was just amazing. Like the dude came in and just, you know, when you're at a show or, or you're maybe at an event or whatever, and somebody can just like command the attention of the audience, Joe Pug came out and just absolutely um, had every eye on him. The place was dead silent. I'm sure there was a few people there that didn't really care that much about the concert. Um, but it was dead silent. It wasn't even a sold out show. It was just a little small bar. 
and and Joe just commanded the the attention of the audience the entire time from start to finish, you know, with the harmonica and the lyrics and it was just incredible, especially after um going through Moo the previous December where the song at Moo became kind of my my like new anthem and it was this song that my brother Hunter had sent me a couple of years back called Hymn 101, Hymn as in H Y M N and it's just like this this beautiful like ballad um, and there's a line in there that says, I've come to trade the harvest for the seed. I've come to trade the harvest for the seed. And that just came to mean so much to me. Like you, you, you spend your time and your life and your energy growing a harvest. And instead of selling it for a profit, you just trade the harvest in for more seed. And the point is like, it's about the growing. It's about the the cultivation, not the product. It's about the cultivation, and it's about it's about growing. It's about putting your energy into into things. And I think that's probably what Joe was thinking about when he wrote that line, or maybe it just sounded good. But but either way, it was it was an incredible incredible show, and he was so cool. And after the show, he came out and was just kind of hanging out in the crowd, and it was one of those like sort of artist moments. Like he was truly one of my favorite artists at the time, still is. And, uh, and I had a chance to go over there and meet him. And I was just kind of watching him meet people from afar. And he was being so cool and so generous and so gracious and so humble and so kind that I was like, I was just watching him from 15 feet away. And I was like, I don't even need to meet him. Like, I can see that he's just a stand-up guy, like just a super nice guy. He was just grateful to, um, you know, anybody that was paying attention and wanted to say hi. He was taking pictures of people, signing autographs, being so cool. And I was like, God. What an amazing night. And so I took the cab back to the hotel. and, and um, But that was just an amazing musical memory that, you know, it ends up being in my top, you know, maybe in my top 10 of my lifetime of like live music. Um, it, it was just fantastic. Okay. Musical memory number two or three, rather, if we're counting James Taylor, then Joe Pug, and then uh, musical memory number three without question um one of the greatest shows i've ever seen in my life in october same year same month as the joe pug show in october in memphis i had had tickets to this show for uh, months and it was maybe one of the most rare concerts that you could possibly ever have the good fortune of uh, getting to go to and it was this band called the neutral milk hotel oh my gosh when i saw that they were touring I would have paid $1,000 to go see this show. Honest, honest to God. I never, it was one of these bands that was like this tiny, um, like just cult band in, you know, the, the late 90s and early 2000s that, um, that, that, that made, released like two albums and then they were gone. Or maybe it was just one. No, it was two albums and then they were gone. They, they were from, um, uh, they were from uh, Ruston, Louisiana, just like this weird indie band, and my brother Hunter showed me to showed them to me, and it just blew my mind. Every one of their songs is perfect and incredible. And when I heard that they were coming to Memphis, it was like I've got to be there. And so uh, me and my buddy Fat, we uh, we 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 got some tickets. We go to Memphis to see Neutral Milk Hotel, and we ran into our buddy Kevin there uh, from Nashville. I didn't know he was going to be there, but he showed up and like just tapped me on the shoulder. I was like, Oh my God, Kevin's here! And uh, it was just incredible. Oh, my gosh. Like, there was no, like, single point at which 
I looked around and realized this show is amazing. It was start to finish. The entire experience was everything that I ever wanted. And, you know, sometimes when you see like a band that's like dis disbanded or broken up or retired and then they come back after, you know, a dozen years, you never know what it's going to be like. You know, they, it could just be a money grab. They could have no energy in it. You know, they could be kind of mailing it in. But uh, that was not the case with uh, Jeff Mangum and the Neutral Milk Hotel guys. You know, they, they came in freaking hot and heavy with, with all the energy, all the noise, all the craziness. They've got like an accordion in the band and a theremin and all this wild shit. And it was just like volume was at 50 and they were just singing their hearts out. And it was one of those shows where like I knew by heart every single word of every single song, no doubt about it. And my boy Kevin and I just stood there just belting all of this, all of the lyrics, you know, throughout the entire show, as well as like everybody in the crowd. This is one of those bands that if you're going to buy a ticket to go see them, you know every one of their songs. If you know, then you know. And if you don't know about Neutral Milk Hotel, you need to go and get their uh, second album, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, and start with that. It's just insane. There's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. It has like, like it's like folk music. It's punk rock. It's like just heavy, heavy shit. It's like avant-garde experimental. And the whole... Um, the whole album start to finish is one piece of music like it everything flows into the next and it's like a concept album about this um this this family in the 1940s that i don't even know where the where the guy gets his ideas from but it's just incredible and so the whole show is just just absolutely amazing and uh you know like i said i don't even have like one song or one moment from that show that was awesome it was just the whole thing was just uh, stupendous it was like you know, after the show, it was like one of those shows when like everyone leaving um, the venue, walking out into the parking lot, just like spilling out into the parking lot. It's just kind of going, oh, my God, can, can you believe that? People are like hugging and like just like embracing after like just seeing it. It was just so freaking cool. Like some people are into like Broadway musicals and that's great. But I'm into live music, man. That that's I guess it's kind of the same thing, musical. But like, nothing compares, man. Nothing compares. That may be the greatest concert I've ever seen in my life. I need to do maybe an episode like ranking, you know, my my actual live music experiences that I've gotten to have. But that was absolutely, you know, one of one of the top ones for sure. All right, two more stories, okay? Before we wrap up this episode, the biggest photo shoot of my life. And here's how it went down in like, gosh, I want to say March or April of 2013. I got a phone call from a producer in Los Angeles, um, a wonderful lady named Ellen. And she calls me up and she says, hey, I've got a uh, photo job that we're uh, looking for bids for. It's with a, uh, a local celebrity to your area. It's for an ad campaign and uh, we're looking for bids for it. And what it involves is... Um, one day of still photography and one day of video. Like, would you be interested? And I was like, absolutely, that sounds fantastic. She said it's going to be in Monroe, Louisiana. So she tells me more about it. You know, one of the things I learned early on in the photography business is when you get a call like this, it's better to say, like, before you start quoting prices, it's better to say, well, tell me what's your budget? You know, what, what kind of money do you have to spend on this? Because, you know, sometimes they don't have any money. Sometimes they got way more than what you would have quoted anyway. And you can actually do a much bigger and better job than you would have expected. 
So I say, what's your budget for this job? And I can't tell you the budget. Uh, I don't, I can't, I, I, I had to sign agreements and stuff and ended up being a really big deal. And so I can't tell you the budget. But I, what I can tell you is that it blew my freaking mind. Um, I don't know that I'll ever have anything that comes close. <laughs> it was it was massive and unbelievable. And when she said the budget, she said, now I know it's going to be tight, but um, here's what we have in the budget for it. And she told me, and I was like, it was literally like one of those moments where like I had to, I like sort of held the phone away from my face and like, had to take a deep breath and I came back to the phone. And I said, okay, yeah. Um, I said, yeah, that's uh, you're right. That'll, that'll probably be kind of tight, but you know, we can, we can make it work. We'll figure, we'll have to get creative, but we can make it work. And in the meantime, I'm like peeing in my pants. I'm so freaking excited. And in my head, I'm thinking like, oh my God, I'll, I'll do anything to get this job. Right. So I said, uh, tell you what, email me all this stuff that you've just told me and give me as well as like any extra info in it and stuff. And uh, I will uh, I will write up a, uh, a, a proposal and a quote for you and send it back to you in like whatever it was like three days or something. So she says, "Great." And I get off the phone. I immediately call my friend um, Nathan, a videographer that I had known um, for just a couple of years. I had uh, met him at a wedding that I was shooting for somebody else, and uh, he was just a cool guy. And and uh, we had done a few like sort of small projects together. And uh, and I said, "Hey Nathan, here's what I got." told him the whole thing, everything the lady told me. I was like, and here's the budget. And he was like, oh my God. Like he, he And he's just like an honest guy. He was like, I was going to tell you that I would do it for like 250 bucks. And I was like, yeah, forget that. Um, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to do this upright. And so I said like, are you in? And he's like, I'm in a hundred percent, whatever you got to do, let's make it happen. And so Nathan and I met a little bit and I had to call my, um, at, at that time I was listed by a, uh, a photographer's rep agency called Wonderful Machine. I called them up and they would consult with me on, you know, big bids and projects and stuff like that. And I said, I need you to help me put together a bid. A couple days later, um, I get the bid back uh, from Wonderful Machine. We kind of talked through it, worked through it, tweak it a little bit. And I submit it to Ellen and I said, you know, here's my bid. And I was like, you know, again, like, you know, we had to, uh, we had to really tighten up and squeeze things together to make it work within your budget. But, you know, we came in right under budget, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, here's the bid. But listen, I said, well, we, we want this job. We will do whatever it takes to get this job. We are the people for you and we are going to do, um, the best job of anyone that you can find guaranteed, you know, and, you know, just a side note that, type of talk to me it has been the most important thing to to help me be successful in my career is just communicating to your client or your future boss that you want the job you know and, and I say that with every like big job that I bid I say I want this job uh, I want to earn your business I want to do everything that you want to be done on this job and I will dedicate myself to it fully and, uh, and I'm committed to this whole thing and, and I hope that we can make it happen, you know, and I don't know if that's what won me the job, but, um, but that's what I said. So we get the job. Uh, she, she calls me a couple of days later and says, we got the job. It's all you, you guys are on, we're going to shoot for November. And, uh, and so long story short, we spent the next, you know, six or eight months, you know, planning, scheduling. I had to hire a producer and a location scout. And when the time came for the job, I ended up having, um, a photography crew of uh, th myself plus three assistants 
Nathan had himself plus like two assistants. He had sound guy. We had props people. We had hair and makeup styles. We had custom wardrobe made. We had two houses rented for locations next door to each other, one for shooting, one for cooking. Had to buy all this gear, hired all these people. I had about 22 people on set um, for the shooting days of this job, including um, some people from the ad agency, some people from um, the, uh, the, the, the client itself, which was Luana Cooking Oils, and the, um, the celebrity herself, which was Miss Kay Robertson from Duck Dynasty. Um, and it was so cool when Miss Kay came in for the shoot, you know, when, you know, she is a celebrity, even though it, like it's a reality show at the time, it was the biggest reality show. It was the biggest TV show in the country. Duck Dynasty was huge, huge. And, uh, you know, so you never really know what the celebrity is going to be like, what their mood's going to be like, if they're anything like they are on the show. And so it was all kind of like, all right, Miss Kay's on the way. Like we kept getting these updates from our producer, Leslie, fantastic producer. Oh my gosh. I would have been sunk on this job without Leslie, but, uh, she's saying, okay, Miss Kay's in the car. Okay. Miss Kay pulled up and, and, uh, that, that's what everybody calls her, Miss Kay. And she came in the door. She ended up being a little bit late, but that was okay. And she walked in and she's got like a towel over her head, sunglasses, and like a, a, a sonic drink. And, uh, you know, she came in, didn't say anything to anybody. She said, where's hair and makeup? And we pointed her back to the room. She goes back in there. And, uh, you know, after about 10 minutes or so, Leslie's like, all right, I'm going to go check on Miss Kay and see how she's doing. Leslie's so sweet. She went back there and she, she talked and stuff and she came back out and she said, okay, she's cool. She's doing good. She's had to, you know, get herself together and get her hair and makeup on and everything. And and I said, okay, like, um, I said, Leslie, can you go check and see if it's all right if I come back to just introduce myself and, and kind of go through the schedule with her? And she was like, sure. And so she went back there and she came back and she said, she said, Jacob, uh, Miss Kay would love to meet you. You can go back there now. So I go back to the hair and makeup room. And, you know, if, if you know Duck Dynasty, pretty much everybody does. But you know that, like, all the guys on Duck Dynasty have a huge, huge, giant, ridiculous beard. And I also have a huge, giant, ridiculous beard. And so it was so funny. Uh, I walked back there and Leslie says, Miss Kay, this is the photographer, Jacob. And she turns and she looks at me and she goes, oh, thank God, I'm more comfortable around men with beards, you know, and like that just cut the, that just cut the ice and everybody laughed and everything. And I was like, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you said that. I said, I grew this beard just for you. And she, she laughed real hard at that and everything. And, and it was so cool. I went through the day with her and um, she was the best. It's so nice, so funny, just like a lot of energy. She was entertaining everybody, just cracking jokes and calling everybody honey and sweetie and can you get this for them, you know. It was just so cool and she was she was really she did fantastic for the shoot. Uh and so the one day of photography, you know, it just sort of breezed by. And we had done a, a prior day of like test shoots and setups and light tests and everything. My assistants were fantastic. Uh, Fat Michael and uh, and my buddy Jake on the um, on the digital tech. Uh, he sat at the computer as the images came through and did some light editing and was working with uh, the ad agency on on how how things were going to look and stuff. And it just was such a fun day. And uh, at the end of it, I was so like, um, you know how when you've completed something like big and difficult with a lot of pressure, you just kind of collapse. I was so like just wasted after that after that whole day of shooting that like I was breaking down my lights and I ended up like just breaking a light bulb completely. One of the, one of the globes on the end of my lights just 
shattered everywhere. And Jake came over and he was like, I got this dude, you, you go outside and get some air, you know? And I just went outside. We were shooting on the edge of this lake and this, this lake house. And I went down to the dock and just sat down and just like put my head in my hands. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, thank God. Like I did it. I did it. And I absolutely crushed it. I absolutely crushed the shoot. It was so incredible. Um, I was just thanking God for just a, a good day, you know, an amazing day where I earned a freaking ton of money <laughs> and, uh, and everybody was happy. The client was happy. The, the, uh, the agency was happy. Miss Kay was happy. My crew was happy. Everybody was doing a, a great job. And then the next day they did, um, all the video work. They had to do all these, like, you know, she had to read lines and just all this video stuff with like cooking and stuff, all this cooking oil. That was kind of the featured product and everything. And, Nathan knocked it out of the park that day. Him and his wife, Allie, just absolutely crushed it. It was just an amazing day. It was just so amazing. And uh, I remember that night, uh, we went out to uh, celebrate uh, with with uh, some of the crew. And, I mean, just, you know, passing beers around and, and laughing and telling jokes and stories and talking about sort of moments from the, the previous few days, you know. And it was just wild. It was just incredible. And it was just so cool to be able to turn in some images that, that everybody was happy with and excited about. And, um, it was just, a, it was just a freaking job well done. And I remember like at the end of it, um, the producer Ellen for the, um, agency, not my producer, Leslie, but the agency producer, Leslie, I mean, Ellen just came over and just gave me a big hug. And she was like, Oh my gosh, you were so great. And she was so cool. And it was just such a freaking fantastic, amazing thing. And, you know, I like there was definitely a part of me that was like, gosh, it would be cool to do more stuff like this. But when you live in Arkansas, that type of job just doesn't come up very often. You know, we just don't have those big jobs. I mean, they the only reason I got that job was because we had to shoot it near Monroe, Louisiana. And so they hired somebody that was semi-local to the area in Little Rock. And, um, you know, I, I was, I'm definitely a little bit jealous of photographers that get to shoot on, on big budget sort of jobs like that, where it's not just the money, but the production value and the team that you can put together. Um, it's just so much fun, uh, to, to work together. And, and it was just wild for me to be essentially the point man for that, that team, you know, I mean, and I hired Leslie to, to be that for me so I could relax, but it, it was all coming from me and I'm the one that paid everybody else out on that job. And, you know, it was, it was so cool. And there's a lot of pressure. It was just awesome. It was just so freaking awesome. And I don't, I don't know that I'll ever top that, that job in terms of, uh, budget, in terms of size, in terms of, uh, you know, reach, um, all that stuff. It, it was really fun. I hope I get another one like that. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that would be, uh, that would be incredible. And then a couple months later, it was so cool to start seeing like the products popping up in short in stores. You know, I was seeing like ads on YouTube videos that Nathan had shot and I was seeing my photos on, you know, products in the grocery store and stuff. And it was just it was just really, really fun. Um, so anyway, one more story to close out this episode and then we will uh, get on and get towards the next year, 2014. Um, but without a doubt, after all of this stuff in the year, the James Taylor, the Joe Pug, the Neutral Milk Hotel, the Miss K shoot, Snow Camp in Taos, the Oil Spill in Mayflower, uh, the beach trip with the group. There's one thing that absolutely overshadows all of that nonsense. That stuff is utterly meaningless and useless compared to the birth of my third child, Rosie. And I got to tell you about that.
So, Micaiah got pregnant in uh, December of 2012, and so nine months later, September is Rosie's due date. I don't remember her actual due date, but she was born on September 17th. And for this birth, my wife Micaiah wanted to do something a little bit different. For our previous two kids, we had had them in Baptist Hospital here in Little Rock uh, with the help of a doula named Cora. And but Micaiah had the babies, um, you know, what we call naturally. That means no drugs, no, uh, no, no epidural, no medication of any kind. But you have them in the hospital just for the safety of the whole thing. And really, I wanted that too. You know, I, I, I liked the uh, comfort of and safety of knowing that there was uh, everything nearby that, that we might need if something didn't go right. But for our third baby, Micaiah had done so great with our previous two with the natural birth and and all that that she wanted to have a baby at home and i said babe you, you have proven that you are an absolute pro at this so we will do it absolutely your way what do you want to do and so she said i want to hire a midwife and i want to just do it at home and i would like to have a water birth um which you know these things are becoming more and more common but even still like it, it's not um a lot of people don't don't really even know that people still do that um, but it's coming back, and I, th- I think it's a great thing. So we had a, uh, a midwife hired, this wonderful lady named Amy, and we had Cora, our doula, come back um, to, to help Amy. And we're all, we had had our, like, um, you know, consultation meetings and everything and our kind of home evaluation stuff, and we had a good plan in place, and we really, really liked Amy. We already had known her from, from other things. So it just kind of it kind of made sense. And just like Cora, Amy is just real, like, you know, sort of one of these natural kind of whole foods sort of hippie type people that's all about birth. And it's just so cool to see people like embracing not only like doing things naturally, but um, doing things with a lot of reverence, you know. And of course, like what's more sacred than having a baby? Um, it, it's truly like the, the greatest and biggest miracle that happens every single day. And uh, so we had our plan in place and everything. Leading up to the birth, you know, it had just been a wild year, right? So again, this is September, um, but it had already been, you know, a, a wild and busy year. And my wife's pregnant and there's just a lot going on. And I remember in my head, I was just kind of scattered a little bit. And I remember like the day that Micaiah started to go into labor, I needed to like sort of focus up and get sort of present. And I, it took me a second to get there. And I remember I was just like, sitting down and like praying and just kind of being like sort of sort of like uh introspective and internal and and Micaiah's walking around the house like sort of in the early stages of labor and I remember saying like hey what are you doing and I was like okay yes you're right it's it's like I had to I had to snap out of it you know and it took me a second but but I snapped out of it and to be honest um this birth happened in just like a a total whirlwind of um of of moments. I mean, I guess just like any birth, like it's really hard to tell the story without being like just jumbled and scattered and and uh, that's at least my perspective. And so what I remember about Rosie's birth is this. Um uh, like I said, Micaiah's in the early stages of labor. I'm kind of in my own head and then I get out of that and then we call Amy and Cora and and when things start to speed up, you know, they came they come over and everything and they start filling up 
this giant inflatable um i think what it is honestly is it's an inflatable hot tub it's really big and it's basically the size of like a hot tub like a circular thing we move our um kitchen table out of the way and push our chairs out of the way and kind of make this big space on the floor and we had already kind of you know figured out the plan for that and everything but we start filling up the tub with water and as you might imagine it takes forever to fill up this gigantic pool with water we, we didn't fill it up but it probably had you know two feet of water in the bottom maybe a little bit more and and then at the same time i had the hose running in the house from outside to fill up the tub and we had to buy a brand new hose so that it would be clean and sterile and everything and at the same time amy or cora one is like boiling water on the stovetop to add to the uh, the cold water that was coming in to sort of make a nice comfortable warm warm bath sort of situation and so that's all happening. And meanwhile, Micaiah's sort of going through early labor and going through some contractions and stuff. And, and it was either Cora or Amy was kind of helping her go through that. It was just like this cool teamwork of, you know, okay, you do this and you do this and we'll we'll knock this out, blah, blah, blah. And by the time, you know, Micaiah went through like a lot of labor uh, on, on our bed. And I remember my, my mom came over and picked up the kids and took them over to her house so that uh, Emma and Wen wouldn't wouldn't be around bothering us and whatnot, and we could sort of just focus on on the baby, which we knew was going to be a girl. We had already named her Rosie Rosemary Reeves, so all that stuff was figured out. Makai's going through the labor and stuff, and to be honest, like all of that stuff is just kind of um, this like this scattered thoughts again, you know. And then I'll the, the parts that sticks with me in my brain is the moment that Makai got into the tub. You know, and we had decided like they had been checking her and everything. And they said, oh, she said like, hey, I think I'm like probably want to get in the tub now. You know, so they say, OK, great. And it was just so cool doing this at home uh, because versus the hospital, you have like stuff on you. And, you know, even though it's natural labor, you're still going to have like a heart rate monitor on you and tubes and cords. And it's not comfortable because it's not your house. And, you know, there's kind of nurses that you don't know popping in and out and they're changing shifts and. It's just not the way it should be. It's definitely not the way God designed it to be. So it was just so cool to be in that kind of chill setting where it was just me and Amy and Cora just helping Micaiah get through whatever. And Micaiah's, of course, doing, you know, the vast majority of the work herself. And we're just kind of there as support. So Micaiah says, like, I think I want to get in the tub. And it was like, okay, cool, let's do it, you know. And we just kind of move carefully into the other room and... And Micaiah gets in the tub and it's comfortable and warm and everything. And we're all kind of just like, you know, kneeling on the outside of the tub, just kind of, just kind of hanging, you know, and Micaiah had like a warm rag on her forehead and stuff. And, you know, I, I can't speak to her experience, but I, I can certainly imagine that it was a much more comfortable experience, you know, I mean, being in water and, you know, she had the extra weight of the baby and there's pressure and you're going through contractions and it's painful and, to be sitting in a warm tub of water in your living room with some mellow music playing. Again, Sigur Ross, just like we had for the first two kids, you know, just playing, the lights are down low. It's just peaceful, you know, it's just very peaceful. And uh, so Makai's going through these contractions and she's handling them like a champ and everything. And things start to really progress. And I don't really remember how much time she was in the tub before we had the baby or before she started pushing. But, um, you know, it was so cool because everybody was so hands off, like nobody was touching her. Um, and uh, and so Makai said, I think I'm ready to push, you know, and Amy and Cora are just like, OK, well, when you're ready, you're, you go ahead and do it, you know. And and uh, 
and, you know, let us know if you need anything. And we're just kind of sitting there. And I was kind of watching Amy, you know, she's a professional midwife. She's done these a thousand times. And she was just such a calming presence. So Makai's like, all right, I'm pushing. And, and her pushing was even different, you know, in my mind. Um, you know, it it was just much more calm and much more controlled and much more professional, you know. Like she was just, you know, it's her third rodeo, really, you know. She knew what she was doing and she's pushing and pushing. And Amy, I remember looking, Amy was like across the tub from Micaiah. So she was looking, you know, at the baby area and I was behind Micaiah and Amy's kind of looking, and she's like, okay, we can see a little bit of a head, you know. It's just so chill. And uh, Makai's pushing, and, you know, Amy says, like, okay, well, the head's out. Okay, let's give it another push. All right. You know, it's just, like, so chill. I mean, this is how I remember it. <laughs> and, uh, and like, the, the baby's, like, coming out. It's just so calm and so relaxed and so different from our others. And I remember Amy just said, like, okay, catch your baby. And literally, Micaiah is sitting there, and she reaches down with her two hands and pulls the baby up out of the water. Just pulls Rosie out, and she wasn't crying. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you do a water birth is because it's much more of a smooth transition for the baby from going from this really tight, warm, sort of liquid environment um, where in the hospital they come out into, like, a, a room that's cool and just and they're drying her off and poking her with this and that and suctioning and everything. And of course the baby's going to cry, but in the water, you know, it goes from that warm liquid environment to another warm liquid environment. And then it gets pulled out of that and it gets put right on the mom's chest, which is still a warm and sort of liquidy wet environment. And it's just a much smoother transition. It's easy to, to see why that would be easier for the baby. So Rosie came out and Micaiah like pulled her up out of the water and I was just like oh my god you know and um Cora and Amy didn't even really do anything I mean I'm sure they would have if they needed to but they just kind of were like oh my gosh you did it you know and and uh, and they waited a minute they put the baby right on they, they let Micaiah just put her right on her chest and you know the cord's coming down there's kind of the you know the gross stuff that comes with the baby and it was all just kind of there you know but it was very natural and and Micaiah's holding the baby, you know, and we're crying, and it's just beautiful, and they give us a minute, you know, before they get into all the, like, suction and, you know, checking the baby's vitals and whatnot, and we just got to have, like, a tender moment there, you know, in the tub, and, and uh, they ended up putting, like, a, a warm rag over the baby with Micaiah, and they just got to have that, that sweet moment, and I'll never forget, like, just kind of looking at that and just going, like, like, geez, what, what a freaking amazing thing, man. You know, not, not only that my wife is a, is an absolute champion and can do this type of thing. And, and not only can she do it, but she do it, she can do it exactly the way that she intended to do it and do it with such success and with, with such strength. Not only that, but just the miracle of childbirth at all that like three people go into a room and four come out, you know, that this, this baby can just grow from, from a cell and in nine months come out as a fully formed kid, you know? So they did all that stuff and eventually like I got to have my chance to hold the baby and I got to cut the cord for Rosie. Like that was a fun thing that I hadn't gotten to do yet. I mean, I did it with Emma, but it had already been cut. It was more of a cer ceremonial cut. And uh, with Rosie, I got to cut the cord and, and they put her on my lap and I had a little towel and I remember like laying her down on my knees. I was sitting in this chair in our in our kitchen or in our dining room and I had her on my knees with this towel and I, and I pulled up my phone and I got this picture of her and she's just kind of laying there looking up at me. Um, it's just such a beautiful, such a beautiful moment, man. Oh, 
Rosie, gosh, I love you so much, girl. It's just such a such an amazing thing. There, there's no way to to really articulate how incredible that is. And the other great thing about that was that um, Rosie turned out to be definitely our easiest baby. Uh, we had had two like serious criers, and then Rosie was just like chill and and easy. You know, it was just so great to to have an easy experience with the actual infant stage of things. Um, she's, she's growing up to be such a cool little kid. So cool, so fun, so awesome, so silly. And I just love her so, so much. And uh, it's just, just an amazing thing to, to, to be able to have a kid with the woman that you love. Um, not just one kid, but three kids. And, and for it to just be an amazing experience. And that's something I hope uh, for, for all of you out there listening that, uh, that haven't had kids yet, but want kids, or maybe you can't have a kid, but you want to adopt a kid. It's the same thing. And, um, parenting is, is, is a beautiful, amazing, difficult thing. Um, and, uh, it's, it's sacred. It's truly sacred. And I'm just so thankful to have three amazing kids and one amazing wife that, that have changed my freaking life. Absolutely. All right. That's the end of 2013. Thank you for listening to it with me. Next time, come back to me next Monday and we will talk about the year 2014, a wild year of traveling from Vegas to New York to Toronto and more and a three-part story about the infamous and legendary adults-only nights at Wild River Country. What a story. There could be a three-part movie series about that. Come back next Monday and check it out with me. New episodes drop every Monday, so stick around, subscribe, drop a rating and a review, help me out, share this with your friends. It's fun. If you're having fun, I'm having fun, and we're all going to do it together. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week. Oh,